You're listening to Studies in the Book of James. If you'd like more resources like this or you're in the Kansas City area and would like to connect, you can find us at thebridgekc.church. Something to note as we near the end here is the authority that James spoke with. He doesn't say it at the beginning of the book when he introduces himself, but he's the half-brother of Jesus. And this is his half-brother who had an encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. So he did not actually follow Jesus during the course of Jesus' earthly life. In fact, at times he mocked Jesus during his earthly life, but he finds himself, you know, decades later, he's an apostle. Your past does not disqualify you for the most important role in your life. So here he is, he's rejected and pushed back on Jesus his entire life, and then late in life comes to the Lord and writes this book. Now for a book that seems like it's all over the map, he brings it to a razor sharp point in chapter 5. And we've got two weeks to finish this book, and this is how it's going to happen. In the final chapter, he talks about kind of four different things. He speaks prophetically, revealing the heart of Jesus towards a matter. Now, was James a prophet? No, but he was speaking, in a sense, with a prophetic voice, declaring what was to come, and more importantly, why it mattered. Some people get a little nervous when we talk about speaking with a prophetic voice because they think, well, are they going to tell the future? It is less to do with the future and more to do with our reaction to God's truth. A prophetic voice here is not for informational purposes, although information comes. It is more for adjustment purposes as we understand God's heart about something. So he speaks initially with a prophetic voice, which is in line with what Jesus said. Revelation 19 calls the spirit of prophecy the testimony of Jesus. So he is agreeing with what Jesus says about a really important issue. He speaks prophetically, and then he speaks about patience, which is the next section. We'll talk about this this morning as well. It's so interesting that the urgency that he speaks with in the prophetic section, in the next section, he's talking about the same event, but he talks about patience. It's the same event that he's talking about, but he's talking to two different groups. So after he speaks prophetically and after he speaks about patience, he speaks about our proclamation or the power or lack of power in our words and our integrity. We'll touch on that at the very end. And then next week, we are going to talk about the prayer of faith that he closes the book about. Next week's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have an extended time of worship. Laura Park is going to be visiting. She's going to be leading worship for us. And we're just going to rest in that. And we're going to teach a little bit on this praying for the sick piece that he ends with. And we would be strangely amiss at the end of the book of James if we did not do what James said. Because that's what the whole book is about. So we're going to take time and just pray for the sick next week. Diving into the beginning of that chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at that prophetic section. If you are using version, hit the More tab, go to Events, and all of the notes will be there as well. James 5, 1 through 6. And before I read this, let me just take a second. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to be present in a way that helps you to apply this as you go. And that you would even be looking for places to apply this. Sometimes when you're listening, you have a tendency to kind of lean back and say, show me where it's supposed to fit. But this is our effort of leaning into the Holy Spirit and saying, Lord, show me where this fits. Father, we ask as we dive into your word this morning that you would bring it alive to us. You would show us places in our heart where it applies. 
Father, bring it home to us in Jesus' name. Amen. James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat and will eat your flesh like fire. You laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I call this the prophetic passage because he mixes events of the day with the events that are going to come, and he talks about how those two things are connected. It's an observation of the rich, of the abuse that they heap on the poor, but he starts it with a prediction of what is coming for them in the day of judgment. He tells the what first, the miseries that are coming upon them, and then he tells the why. Now, don't oversimplify this. You could, you could read this really quickly and think, well, this is just kind of a story about what the world would call karma. We get what's coming to us. If we act badly, then bad things happen to us. No, this is something stronger. He is warning them about the coming day of the Lord, and they don't see it coming. Or apparently they don't see it coming because their behavior indicates that they don't see it coming. In our finite experience, we think of time a little bit as cyclical, don't we? Generations after generations after generations, and we put ourselves in that timeline, but it kind of feels like it goes on forever, and it makes us feel better about our connection forward and backwards. And in chapter 4, we talked about how our lives are a vapor and that they go quickly Yet time is central to human history, and time is not cyclical, time is linear. God existed before time, but he gave it as a gift to us so that we could measure progress in our own life. And we are marching towards a day that will be the end of human history as we know it. There will be a generation that sees it with their own eyes, and even those that died in anticipation of it will have to deal with the reality of it. When you die, there are certain things you don't have to worry about anymore. You don't have to return your library books. You don't have to finish the yard. There are certain things when you die, you get a pass on those things. Nobody expects you to deal with that. But there is a day coming in human history that is so seminal to the timeline of God that even those that have died have to reckon with it. There's a conventional theory in the American church that leads pastors not to talk about that day. Some people feel that speaking about the coming day of the Lord or his return is divisive. Others of them don't speak about it because they're not sure enough about how they feel about it and they, they don't really want to get into the debate because pastors don't like admitting they don't know what they're talking about any more than you do. But a lot of them don't talk about it because they say things like, well, my church family is struggling to pay the bills. They're trying to keep their marriages together. They're trying to make life work. They're trying to get over addictions. They're trying to meet practical needs. And yes, all of those things are true. And I, I love that kind of practical teaching. But there are times that our marriages are a mess and our lives are a mess. And we're struggling to make them work because we have separated our existence from the fact that there is a coming day of the Lord. And we have separated our own reality from that fact that there is a day of judgment coming. And if we believed that, we might find a little more fortitude to make adjustments to our life. 
Short of an end game, of a return of the Lord, of a great day of the Lord, short of coming to terms with that happening, church is a really strange thing to do. Like, why would you do this without there being an end game? Because the gospel is about more than just consolation or even more than giving you courage. It's about giving you hope that one day Jesus returns and everything changes. And again, this isn't talked about that much, but let me tell you about a church planter I know a little bit about. This guy had a radical conversion to Jesus. It was so radical that when he came to the Lord and he began to visit churches, the people in the churches were not happy to have him there. They were like, "Eh, maybe this is not the congregation for you. He went on to plant churches, planted 14 churches over the course of his lifetime, and he would keep track of these churches with these letters that he would write to them. Most of the churches, all of the churches that he founded were entirely new believers in places where there had been no churches before. What did that man say to all of those new believers? It was the Apostle Paul. What did he write to the church in Thessalonica? Chapter, I'm sorry, in Thessalonians, chapter 5, 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, again, he's speaking to baby Christians who we are told don't like to hear about these things. Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, and suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He said, it comes like a thief in the night, but you're not going to be surprised. Why? Because even as he planted these churches among young believers, he talked about this reality that Jesus is coming back. Paul wrote to this church full of baby Christians about the return of Jesus. By what measure in America do we think people aren't ready for that yet? Anytime we start talking about this, someone will come to me afterwards and go, you know, but the Bible says no man knows the hour. Yes, absolutely. No man knows the hour. But the Bible does not say we'll be clueless or that we should keep our head in a bucket. We need to live with an awareness of the coming of the day of the Lord Lest the church just become another nonprofit that helps people lead, lead a little bit better life now. Our mission is bigger than that. And the church that ignores that there is a day when our efforts will be measured and they will matter is the church that misses out on the hope of the church because we are empowered to change history in our own lives and the lives of others. Do you know why some of your friends think church is boring? You know why some of you think church is boring? Because you think that it's not going anywhere and it doesn't amount to anything. Friends, the church is going somewhere. And it amounts to something on the day he returns. The prophet Joel talks about this and he uses this phrase, I've said this before, he calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. How can the same day be great and terrible? Depends who you are. You ever taken your kids to Chuck E. Cheese? (laughs) Great for them? It's terrible for you. It's awful. Some days are great and terrible. It depends on the person having the experience. And James is warning of this day that will be terrible for some and will be great for others. They are awaiting the return of the king of the universe who rules in justice and love in a way that makes those two things compatible. And it depends on who you are and where your heart is on that day, whether that day is great or terrible to you. 
So in light of this coming day, this is what James finds them doing in the early parts of James chapter 5. Some of you thought I'd completely forgot James. We'll always get back. He finds them working towards the wrong goals. They're going the wrong direction. We just had a son move out of the soccer years and had one move into the soccer years. And those of you that have watched a, a son or a daughter progress through that, you know that that first year or two, you spend a significant amount of time yelling, other way, other way, because they don't know which goal to run to. And this is James' attempt talking to those that are rich and powerful going, other way, you're running the wrong direction. He says in verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The point being, you have laid up treasure in the wrong spot. In regards to the wealthy or the powerful, James describes them as living in a way that displays an opposite spirit of the way Jesus talked about wealth and what Jesus challenged people to do. And it references almost directly this passage in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, where Jesus said, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. How important an idea was it that this got into the New Testament? The chances are James had not read the book of Matthew. He didn't, he didn't page through Matthew and go, oh, that's, I'm using that. He wasn't plagiarizing Matthew. This had had an impact on him from when Jesus said it, even when he didn't believe him. He said, no, no, you are setting yourself up for disappointment by investing in things that will never, ever last. James is seeing people live wasted lives by investing in things that won't stand the test of time. And he describes people who are storing up treasures and it's becoming corrupt even as they're storing it. Like the more they squirrel it away, the more useless it seems to be. Do you ever feel that no matter how hard you work and how hard you scrimp and how hard you save, you never have enough? It's like, I've been trying and trying and trying and it's just, it's never there. He says, it's because you're putting it in the wrong spots. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6, the prophet says to the people, you have sown much and you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Some of you are living lives and you're aware of it. Even as you squirrel away, you try and save. It's go you can never find, you're not getting ahead. And he says, it's because you're putting it in the wrong places. One of the reasons is there's never enough is we're putting it in the wrong places where it never lasts. Jesus cares what you do with your money. That's an offensive thought to some people. And it's not because he needs your money so bad. In fact, you, you find it odd that he cares what you do with your money. He finds it odd that you think you have that much say about what you do with his money. And he sees you not regarding him with the bit that he gives you, and you're putting it in pockets, and it's just going right out the bottom. And you're like, I, 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 everything I've saved, it's all corrupt. I have nothing left. He cares what you do with your money because he knows what it says about your heart. It's not because he's short 10 bucks. It's because when he sees you invest in things that do not matter, he knows you will always be lacking. He's not offended at you. His heart is wounded for you. I took uh, 
seven of my kids to Target two days ago by myself. I literally posted it on Instagram. I said, if you're thinking of going to Target, you might want to wait. <laughs> and all of them had some amount of, of money from little jobs they have done, which they all had my money. Okay. And so they've, <laughs> they've all got money, and we wandered the halls of Target forever. I mean, forever. I think one kid celebrated two birthdays at Target. <laughs> and I'm watching them with their little hard-earned money, their three, four, five bucks, whatever they've got, except for Anna, which hasn't spent any money in years and has a, when she cashes in, she's going to break the bank. But the others have a couple of bucks and I'm watching what they want to spend their money on and I'm going, nah, don't, don't know, knowing full well, but by the time we get into the van and that thing is open, they're going to go, <laughs> this is junk. And it's heavy on my heart, not because I care about their 2 or $3, but because I care about their heart. And I care about what they're investing in because I know it matters. Jesus cares where you put your money, not because he needs your money, but because he wants your heart. So he speaks to them about where they're storing up wealth. And he says, you're working towards the wrong goal. The second thing he speaks to them about is the fact that they are using unfair advantage. James 5, 4, and 5, Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the earth in the luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So he writes to those who have significant power. They are the landowners of the day. In an agrarian society, those with the land have the power. It's always been that way. Even in the United States, pre-Civil War, those that had land also owned slaves. And when the Emancipation Proclamation occurred and they were set free, it didn't really even change their lives that much because they had no land. Uh, we celebrated Juneteenth this week. How many of you even know what Juneteenth is? A couple of you. Juneteenth is uh, June 19th, let me get the year right here, 1865, which is when the news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached slaves in Texas, two and a half years after it had been signed. They'd been free on paper for two and a half years, but they were held captive. In fact, most of the slave owners in Texas knew about the Emancipation Proclamation far in advance, but they did not want to tell their slaves because they wanted to get the last crop in. Once the proclamation was made, they were free, and they went from living in hovels and eating scraps and working long hours as slaves to working for a little bit of money for the same guy and in turn buying scraps of food and renting out hovels. Nothing really changed for them because by nature of owning the land, those that owned the land had great power. In our society, it may not be land, but it's influence or it's advantage or it's race that gives us a step up over someone else. Whatever the position of power, Jesus warns against abuse of that. Now, is power in itself corrupting? No, we were all born corrupt before we had power. But power accentuates the corruption within our own hearts. And he says in, in James 5, the wages of the laborers have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. 
and are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lords of hosts. The workers he was speaking to would have been day laborers. They weren't skilled laborers. And so they would go to the landowner, they would work that day, they would get paid for that day's wages, they would go on their way. What he's saying there is as a landowner, they were withholding wages, saying, oh, you know, I'll pay you at the end of the week, I'll pay you at the end of the month, fully intending to pay them, but not understanding that to a day laborer who does not get paid day by day, they don't eat. To make it worse, as they were delaying their wages, they were trying to discount their wages. But they would have never described themselves as being oppressive. Those with power or an advantage are rarely in a position to determine what oppression is. Because they don't see that they're even doing it. The landowner didn't live on a day-to-day basis. He handled the fluctuations of his own salary, and he was able to eat whether he got paid that day or not, but the day laborer was very different, and he might not even have thought of himself as oppressing them, and James says, no, that's oppressive that you do that. James tells us the life of a believer should be concerned with the things that inhibit others from finding their full opportunity, and to fail to see things through others' lens of difficulty is to actually extend oppression. The question is, what group do we dismiss when they talk about oppression because we don't see it? Doesn't seem like a problem to us, but it's a problem to them. No one should have, be better at empathy towards the powerless or the disadvantaged than followers of Jesus. No one. Because if we're honest, we would recognize that everything that we have, even the things that we would say we worked for, came from Jesus. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We think of that as spiritual gifts. It is spiritual. It is also physical. In either case, how did we get those things? We didn't get them to use them as weapons of oppression. And we will answer for our days of advantage over others and how we used our advantages. So James speaks prophetically to those that are wealthy or those that have advantage over others, and he warns them about the coming day of the Lord, that the judge is at the door, and there will be a time when you answer for how you have managed your advantage. Next, he goes on to address patience, and he addresses a different group of people here. Having spoken to the wealthy unbelievers about abuse and misuse of people, the following verses, James talks to those who are believers about the opposite side of the same coin. Remember, he was talking to the rich about the coming day of the Lord, and even though his audience changes, his topic doesn't here. I told you it was a great and terrible day. It was terrible for the rich. It is great for others. James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He speaks over and over and over in that passage about patience. Does anybody know what the original use of the internet was? It was military. 
The original purpose of the, of the internet was to connect military bases. Very quickly, secondary use of the internet was to help people with weird hobbies find each other. <laughs> like, that's how it happens. You go online, you can find weird little collections of people that do all kinds of things that are very important to them. I ran across a group the other day of uh, uh, car aficionados that buy old Porsches and put Chevy V8s in them which dramatically changes the handling, doesn't improve the performance, and just makes Porsche owners mad, which I think is why they do it. I don't know. I've got pastor friends online who have gathered that are really into beekeeping because I guess their regular job just doesn't have enough excitement or stress. I don't know why they do that. But I literally have three friends online that have discovered the pastor friends that have started keeping bees. Anything, you go online, any weird little hobby that people do, you know, if there's probably an online group for people to collect pine cones and glue rhinestones on them, I don't know. <laughs> Some of you are going, that's not that weird. Okay, <laughs> sorry. But for every little weird group that you find online, you will not find any group that comes together for their joy of waiting, for their joy of patience. So what's this group about? We just like to wait. Sometimes we get in lines just to get to the front. We go to the back. <laughs> it's awesome. No, because nobody likes to wait, which is unfortunate because it's kind of a universal experience. In fact, James tells us as believers, as brothers and sisters in the faith, to have patience or to wait for the coming of the Lord. Why would we wait for anything? Really think about it, the nature of waiting. The only reason to wait for something or to endure hardship for something is if the value of what you are getting outweighs the amount of time that you waited. How long would you wait for a free cup of good coffee? Two minutes? Four minutes? I don't know if anybody wait for six or seven minutes. You know, it's got to be pretty good coffee. Why? Because at some point you're going, you know, the cost of my time versus standing in line, is it worth waiting for? How long you wait is directly connected to the value of the thing you're waiting for. 1984, in Minot, North Dakota, which is the nearest thing to where I grew up that you might call a town. You wouldn't call it a city, but you'd call it a town. We got our own rock station. Now, up until then, if you wanted to listen to rock music, you had to tune into KFYR, which is in Bismarck, 100 miles away. But we had our own local rock station, and it was... Current pop music, which meant they would play a Bruce Springsteen song, a Madonna song, the Police song, a Billy Joel song, and probably something from Men at Work. And when they were done, they would go back and play the Bruce Springsteen song again. It's like the same five or six songs playing over, and we just thought it was fantastic. And they had a promotion when they started the radio station. They were going to give away a Honda CRX. Some of you remember, you're showing your age, okay? I don't think they make this car anymore. A Honda CRX was essentially a Civic with only two seats. But because it had only two seats, it was exotic. <laughs> like taking a seat out was an upgrade to the car. It was, it was the same car. And so they selected about 20 people somehow, drew names, I don't remember exactly, but then everybody had to meet at the dealership to see who got the car, and everybody from the town came out to see who got the car, and I remember thinking, are they going to pull a name out of the hat, what are they going to do? No, then they all told them, okay, everybody lean against the car, put your hands on the car, last one to let go of the car can have it. 20 people are like, what? <laughs> so they stand there for a while, and they stand there, 
And they stand there and they stand. I think in the end, some guy stood there like three days to get the car. You wouldn't do that for a cup of coffee. Some of you are going, I wouldn't do it for a Civic. <laughs> but your willingness to wait is connected to the value of the thing you are waiting for. What is James talking to us about waiting and what is the value of it? He's talking about waiting for the return of Jesus. Human history has seen some incredible highs and some incredible lows. We have seen wars ravage the earth. We have seen us able to put a man on the moon. We've set our eyes to Mars. Even so, the greatest event in all of human history, both in value and in scale, remains to occur, and it is not initiated by mankind at all. James writes then, Be patient, therefore, Brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We don't have time to go deep into what this means, but we do know this. The best days for earth and men and women are ahead of us. The best days for your existence are not behind you. They lay squarely ahead and at the command of James, who, remember, is the most practical writer in the New Testament. Like, he does not mince words. He doesn't add a lot of fat. It's very practical. And he says the most practical thing you can do is set your heart towards the coming of the Lord and live in patience for it. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's already dealt with sin. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. Many in the faith live with no hope because they feel that their life right now is the pinnacle of where they will be. They think this is as good as it gets, which is a really depressing thought, even if your life is going really well. There's this crazy article in The Atlantic this week that I saw everybody tweeting about, about trying to figure out if, if someone's creativity peaks in their 30s or their 40s or their 50s. It was like the most depressing thing in the world. Because you know what? The peak of your creativity during the arc of your human life is not the peak of your existence. As good as your life ever gets is not the best of life as you can know it. Now, I love what God is doing. I love what he's doing here. I love what he's doing in my heart and my family. I love God's word. I love to study it. I love the Holy Spirit and his ministry there, and we've seen all that. But what we have not ever encountered is the manifest presence of Jesus. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what a worship service is like when he's in the room physically. We sing about it, but we really don't know. But that day is coming, and that day is worth setting your heart towards and adjusting your life so you're ready on that day. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Remember, it's a great and terrible day. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. James says that one of the things that we as believers are encouraged to be patient with is the knowledge that one day we will see Jesus face to face in light of which everything you've gone through pales when you see him. And then he goes on to talk about what waiting is like and what are the things that we grow impatient with. And he says you're going to grow impatient with the process. You're going to grow impatient with the process. James 5, 7, and 8 says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, farming is an interesting job. It's hurry up and wait. 
It really is. It's plant when you can. It's work long hours when you can. And then you go wait. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And he says, be patient with the process of what I am doing in your heart. Because it's a growth process. And some of you think that the day you come to Jesus that you should be functioning like a 20-year-old believer or somebody who's been in the faith 20 years. James says, Jesus doesn't even expect that. He knows you're going to mature over time. Don't be impatient with your own growth. Some of you are going, I feel a little immature. There is a time for immaturity in your life. I cannot complain about my 10-year-old twins being immature. They're 10. This is a stage in life for that. If they're 30 and acting like that, we have a different conversation. But there is a time for that because growth is a process. Be patient with that growth, knowing that he is coming to perfect you. He also says that we'll grow impatient with one another. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Every disagreement between brothers and sisters in the church must be weighed in light of eternity and the knowledge that the judge stands at the door. Every gripe you have against anyone in the body, put that up against the side, the idea that the judge stands at the door. Well, I was offended by someone in the church. Okay, the judge stands at the door. What do you can do with that? I never felt liked. I went to a small group and it just didn't click. Okay, the judge stands at the door. I didn't like the music. The judge stand. I mean, in light of the judge standing at the door, are the things that we complain about all that weighty? He says, don't get frustrated with one another. The judge stands at the door. Watch your hearts closely. So James speaks with a prophetic voice towards those that abuse power, and then he speaks patience towards believers, and finally he speaks about our own proclamation. Let me read James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, oaths are taken throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Even Paul, as he's writing the book of Galatians, says, I'm telling the truth as God is my witness. So he's not coming out against oaths entirely there, but he's talking about the nature of oaths that were taken against earth or against the moon or against the, the, the planet itself. And it was a way in the day of taking an oath that you had no intention of keeping because it wasn't that serious. It was our equivalent of saying what we want to say with our fingers crossed behind our back. Didn't mean it. Just said it. Didn't mean it. In this season of history, people felt like that kind of oath you would never be held to. And he's saying, don't talk so lightly about things like this in light of having just told them that the judge stands at the door. He said, make sure your words say what they mean and mean what they say because it will not be long, whether by death or the return of Jesus, that you will deal with the fact that what you're saying and what you're doing will be judged. Is there anything more terrifying than realizing our casual approach to life and our speech and the things of God have left us lacking at the end of the day? Just because we were so casual about things. There's a story we're going to close with in the book of Daniel where King Belshazzar is having a banquet. And he's having this drunken party and a hand appears... Just out of nowhere. And you know, we read these stories and we, oh, a hand appears. 
this had not happened to them. They had never read a story where a hand had appeared. And don't act like if it happened at your dining room table, you would go, oh, it's a thing from Daniel. <laughs> this has happened before. No, no, a hand appears and writes on the wall. Mini, mini, tickle, it piercing. He calls to Daniel, because they can't translate this. To this day, we don't know what language this is. There are some hints of some old languages, but it's not clear today. Daniel, by the Spirit of the Lord, prophesies and, and interprets these words. And he interprets it this way. He says, meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. He's like, King, I know you, you think your life is weighty not that much there. He goes on to tell him, your, your kingdom is going to be demanded of you today because your life is being weighed. Behold, the judge stands at the door. Today, the Lord would say, meanie, meanie, tickle, Pearson. What, how is your life being weighed? He said, how are, how are your words being weighed? Are you walking in integrity with the things you say in light of the fact that he all through this chapter has talked to us about the return of Jesus? Thanks for listening to this episode of our 14-part series on the book of James. If you're in the Kansas City area, we would love to meet you. Check us out at thebridgekc.church.